Well, you can have a seat and good evening. My name is Jacob Smith and I am the teaching pastor here uh, for Anderson College. Uh, there's a few of us that are still hanging around. We've got a few finals left. And man, I'll tell you, uh, it is a joy and a privilege for me to join you here on the main side. It's, it's always fun to kind of jump around, uh, and especially in this season, man, we, we have opportunity essentially to look at just a, not only the return of Christ, but an opportunity to look at the ending kind of penult, like the, the crescendo of our series in the Pentateuch. Uh, here in the family service, you've been looking through the first five books of Scripture, what we call the Pentateuch. Uh, and this evening, we're kind of bringing it all to a close. We'll be studying Deuteronomy chapter 6, and we will find within that, in that chapter, what we'll find in that passage is essentially, I think, a beautiful reminder, a beautiful explanation of why, ultimately, God has given us his word. Why God gave the Israelites back in that day, why we still have to this day the original law that the Lord wrote down, inspired through Moses, and gave to his people so long ago. And so we'll be asking and hopefully answering the question of essentially, I mean, why do we follow God's law? Why do we listen to the commands that he wrote down, many of which Jesus Christ himself affirmed in his ministry in the New Testament? What, what are we ultimately hoping to achieve through obedience to this law? Well, to kind of help us understand, I need to explain to you that I do have three children. Uh, they are all under the age of five, Charlotte, Lawrence, and Liam. And uh, these three children uh, are wonderful, made in the image of God, uh, but broken by sin. And so because of that, they have conflict with one another. And just last night, uh, my oldest two kids, Charlotte and Lawrence, they were in the backyard and they were creating uh, what Charlotte described as a fruit salad. Uh, And they had all the essentials, right? So leaves from the trees in our backyard uh, and those little like red berries that I think are poison, right? And that, so that's it, right? So that's their fruit salad crafted in a bowl that they're mixing up. And in the middle of that creation time, uh, my son Lawrence decides, hey, you know what's really going to take this out to the next level? Brownies, a.k.a. dirt clods. And so he started scooping up dirt and wanted to put these quote-unquote brownies into the fruit salad, which sounds delicious. I mean, let's be honest. But as he's trying to do that, my daughter Charlotte is very much a perfectionist so far in life, and she says, no, that is inappropriate, Right? The barefoot contestant would never approve, or a pioneer woman, or whoever. Like, that's not gonna fly in my cookbook. And so, because of that, they began to have conflict, and they, words were screamed, and I think a little bit of shoving took place, until eventually they're both in tears running towards me, uh, just distraught about the entire situation. And what happens in our home is that when our kids fight, when they have conflict, we try our best every single time to essentially walk them through a certain procedure. Uh, It starts with both of them having to ask the other person for forgiveness for the specific thing that they did that hurt them, right? So it's not just, I'm sorry. It's, it's, hey, will you forgive me for yelling at you when you tried to put dirt in my poison salad, right? Like, so that would be one of the lines. After they've both asked and received forgiveness, then the next step is they need to hug. And as they hug, the final step is they proclaim to each other and the entire world, best friends forever, right? That's what they do. That's what we try to walk them through. They ask forgiveness, they hug, that's forever, right? And that's, 
That's the procedure in the Smith house. Why? One, it's adorable. But two, <laughs> two, our goal in that instruction is not just behavior modification. Our goal in that instruction is to legitimately transform their perspectives. It's to legitimately transform their hearts. We want to change their affections and help them recognize, hey, this sibling, this family member is forever, right? Friends are going to come and go. Family is forever. And, and as they begin to realize that, our hope is that they will essentially have a change of heart even as they obey kind of this written out set of rules. And ultimately, when we ask ourselves, why do we follow God's law? What we'll find revealed in Deuteronomy 6, immediately after the Israelites have been presented by Moses with the Ten Commandments, the most famous section of the law, what we find in Deuteronomy 6 is the answer to this question. We find that God, through Moses, tells his people, you're following this law to focus your love. That's why it was given, right? And there were other effects as well. It's it's a multifaceted purpose, but one of the major components, one of the main reasons the law was given, one of the main reasons that we still to this day as God's people follow his commands, follow in obedience what Jesus Christ affirmed even in that original law, it's to focus the love, it's to focus the affections of our heart. And so as we read over Deuteronomy 6. I mean, my, my hope is that we will re- recognize that, man, sometimes we maybe fall into the trap of assuming that we need to follow God's law for other reasons, of, of maybe trying to meet other people's expectations or to prove our worth in the Lord's eyes or maybe to, to somehow elevate our position in the eyes of our family or friends or coworkers. But the reality is that God, the heart of God's law, is the love of our hearts. And we see this laid out in kind of three main movements in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Moses is going to explain who it is exactly that we follow. He's going to explain how it is that we can follow well. And then ultimately why. Why do we walk this path? Why do we follow these commands given by the Lord? And so if you'll open with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6. We'll be starting in verse 4. And we'll be reading in English what I originally told you in Hebrew. Uh, That ultimately we follow the living God expressed right here in verse 4. That hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. This is called, this is the beginning of verses 4 and 5 are in fact known as the Shema. The Shema Israel. And it is recited to this day by practicing Jews uh, every morning and evening if if they're really devout. Uh, in other words, the, the Jews of the day, in the day of Jesus, they were reciting, the devout Jews, they were reciting these words morning and evening every single day because they recognized that this was essentially the foundation, the linchpin, the core of their faith. And they wanted to begin and end every single day with this beautiful reminder to hear, O Israel, that the Lord is our God, that the Lord is one. When I took one of my Hebrew classes in seminary, uh, I had to memorize the, the Shema and a few other things. And, and we, to help us, we actually sang a song at the beginning and end of every class. We would sing these words. We would sing, Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. 
It's not a beautiful ending. But it's very wonderful. Yes, I know. Thank you. Uh, but that is essentially uh, what was, again, recited by every single Israelite growing up morning and evening. Why? Because they were recognizing kind of with these six key words. They're saying, the Lord our God, the Lord one, or seven words, right? So it's this perfect, wonderful seven words, this one beautiful truth, the Lord our God, the Lord one. And as they explain that, right, as they say that, that's why even as we read this, we find maybe a little bit of variation in our translation is that when we see that the Lord is one, uh, you see Hebrew is a very poetic language and there's a lot of wiggle room. And so there is no preposition, there's, there's no official connecting word between the Lord and one. And so as we've tried to discern it's that how it's supposed to fit in, uh, scholars have kind of landed on a few different pages. One option is that they would say, well, it seems to be that that they're talking about God uh, alone. That in other words, God is the only God that they're going to follow. That he is the, the one and only God of Israel, the God that they follow. That could be part of it. Uh, it also could be a one referring to the uniqueness of our God. Meaning that he is uh, above all other, God, all other concepts of God. He is actually, he stands apart. That he's different. That he's one of a kind. It's how it's used often in the Song of Songs. It's this idea of you're, you're so unique. It's so wonderful that th- who you are. Because it's so distinct. Right? And either way, uh, the, the truth is that what's being communicated is that we have a God who is worthy, fully worthy of our full devotion. Right? That's what's being communicated here at the beginning of the Shema. That we follow the one true living God. That's who we follow. Right? And this has been revealed to us uh, throughout creation. Right? This has been revealed to us through God's word. And, and his hope is that we would recognize, hey, he is worth every moment of every day of all of our lives. Because he made us and he loves us and he wants what's best for us. And so his law was meant to communicate that truth. His law was supposed to reveal his worthiness of being followed to his people. It's explained a little bit in Romans. When the Apostle Paul is inspired by the Holy Spirit to write a letter to a church in Rome, uh, he is telling them about the place of the law in their lives in that day, right? Because Jesus had come, Jesus told his followers, he says, I have come that I might fulfill the law. Not to demolish it, not to do away with it, but to fulfill it. To in fact reinforce and reaffirm certain elements of it. And so when Paul's speaking to Christians about the law, he tells them in Romans chapter 3, that now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Paul's saying, look, the law is valuable because it still shows us our deep, ultimate need for forgiveness. That ultimately we're accountable to a perfect God, for no one is declared righteous before him by the works of the law. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. He, he explains this even further later in this book, in this letter to Rome. But he says, look, the, the reality is that the law, when it shows up in my life, it simply, it, yeah, maybe it, it, it affirms that, oh, I did a good job in this and that. He says, but then for every two things that I do correctly, there's a hundred things that I realize I've completely missed the mark on. He says, it's impossible 
for any person because of sin, because of the sin that entered this world through Adam, because of the imperfection that has infected us at our very deepest, most core level. He says it is impossible for anyone to earn the approval of God, to be declared right, to be justified, declared right before him through our own personal work. So praise the Lord that now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God, although it is attested by the law and the prophets, it's been disclosed. Namely, the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all who believe. Paul says this is the place of the law. It is pointing to, it is attesting, along with the prophets, this ultimate truth. That the righteousness of God has been revealed ultimately in Jesus Christ. That because of his perfection... He has proven that God himself is, in fact, perfect. Jesus says, you, you want to know what the Father looks like? Look at me. And when Jesus walked through life, there, there, was, no reason, there was no reason to condemn him. There was no, uh, re, there was no realistic uh, uh, accusation that could be thrown his way. He lived and walked perfectly in this world. And Paul says, man, that is what we see. We see the law fulfilled. In other words, we see the perfection of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ which is available for all who believe, because there's no distinction. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. But they are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. I mean, this is our gospel. This is why we gather and set up trees and sing songs and and lay out little nativity scenes and watch our kids get scared of real-life donkeys. Like, this is why we do these things. Because Jesus Christ came and showed us that there was a way to know the God of the universe that did not depend on our own personal action. Because ultimately, left to ourselves, we have all fallen short. And yet Jesus Christ, he earned every credit, every accolade, every honor, every praise that could ever be launched out. Man, he earned it. He was perfect. And yet because he died anyway, because he died as a substitute for our sin, for our mistake, he has now justified freely by grace anyone who calls on his name. That is our gospel. That is why we celebrate Christmas. That is why ultimately the law was given. To show us that we in and of ourselves were inadequate. That we could never earn our way to God. And yet when Jesus Christ was challenged to obey that law, he did it perfectly. God who took on flesh and then paid the penalty that we incurred. Only by his grace. Not by works. None of us can boast. The law was given to us for this incredible, beautiful picture. And yet, even as we see the perfection of God revealed in the law and the grace of God revealed in Jesus Christ, the truth is that we can still find ourselves turning to other gods. We still find ourselves failing in Paul's kind of final command to the Romans in chapter 3, telling them, do do we nullify the law through faith? No, absolutely not. We uphold it. We uphold the law. We see its value, and yet the reality is that many times we still fail in this. I fail in this. Why? Because my attention and my affections get stolen by other objects or people or desires. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, the pastor Tim Keller writes about this idea of idols, which is really important because, in fact, the first command that God gave his people in the Ten Commandments says, you should put no other gods before me, and he knew 
that, man, they were going to fall victim to that very temptation. And we maybe ask ourselves, as Tim Keller did, what is an idol? He says, well, it's anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God himself can give. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know that I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. And the truth is, man, I, I fall into this trap of assuming that if I can just line up that one relationship to function in a certain way, oh, if I can just get, get that maybe promotion, if I, can, if I can lock down that GPA, if I can just uh, get that approval from that one person that I really care about, then I'll finally be satisfied. Then I'll finally feel significant. And maybe those aren't words that I would say, unless I'm being really honest. And the truth is that, man, all of us, we fall into this trap of chasing after other gods, of forgetting that there is one perfect living God who sent his son on our behalf, who gives us his spirit. For those of us who believe in Jesus Christ, he gives us his spirit to walk with us, to counsel us, to strengthen us, to keep our eyes focused on the things above. And so many times, I know I enter into seasons like this, and I I have to pray for conviction. I have to ask the Lord, God, show me, where is it that I'm allowing people, things, possessions, whatever, take your place? I pray, God, convict me. Bring that to my mind. Bring that to the forefront of my attention so that you can strengthen me to push through it, to overcome it, to redirect. And this is hard, right? This is really difficult. Following God, following his law, obeying him, is, it's, it's so incredibly difficult. Which is why Moses doesn't just leave it with that initial charge of following the living God. He then moves into how. How do we follow well? How do we follow the God who made us, who loves us, who wants our best? Look with me in verse 5 of chapter 6. He says, You must love the Lord your God with your whole mind, with your whole being, and all your strength. This completes the Shema. Completes this call to attention and action. See, in in the Hebrew language, they don't really have a term for uh, obeying. Uh, Instead, if you wanted to make sure someone was going to follow through on what you wanted them to do, you would just ask them, did you Shema? Did you listen? And they would say, yes, I shemad. And that meant, yes, I, I didn't just give you my attention, but I'm also going to act upon it. And so when God is speaking through Moses to his people and he says, listen, Israel, listen. It's not just, hey, hear these words and commit them to memory. He says, follow through on the truth that I'm presenting. You must love the Lord your God with your whole mind, with your whole being and all of your strength. And when he talks about this, this love, man, that's, that's not simply an affection, an emotional affection of our heart. This is a love that is often described between God and his people, where essentially he has committed himself to act and serve their behalf. Right? There's a reason that, oh, so many years ago, Whitney Houston didn't sing about how I, 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 I will always like you. Right? Like that's not, ooh. Right? For one, there's a lot of singing tonight, but for one... That's not, it doesn't roll off the tongue quite as well, or that hard, like, like, 
Two, uh, no one can do that. No one can truly, honestly commit, I will always like you. I will always feel such rich affection for who you are. Right? No one can do that in in honesty. Maybe some of you have tried. Maybe some of you have someone who's like, "I I will, though. We've dated three weeks. I know it's true. Right? Like, maybe... And you could be the first. I'll tell you, my wife and I, in January, are reaching 10 years of marriage. And as we hit that, I'll tell you, when I look back on our marriage, I look back across time, um, has my wife, has Susan always liked me? Maybe. (laughs) Probably not, right? I asked her, I asked her last night, and she was like, oh yeah, for sure. And I was like, okay, well, we'll work on honesty uh, next, next week. But the reality is that, man, I can't just make myself feel positive, positively towards other people. But I can commit myself to serve their interests. I can commit myself to care about them. I can commit myself to be bonded with them in a covenant relationship. That is what God is calling his people to. He says, I want you to love me, to commit yourself in covenant with me. And as you do that, you're giving me your whole mind. Literally right there, the term in Hebrew is is heart uh, because they didn't really have a term for the brain. They didn't really have a term for the intellect. And so they considered, because they considered the heart to be the seat of intellect. They considered the heart to be kind of the seat of your your thoughts and your processing. And so he says, I want you to give me all of your thoughts, all of your attention, your whole being. The Hebrew term there is soul. And it was because they saw that the soul was sort of this all-encompassing kind of holistic term to describe you. It was, was, you're going to give everything that you are, all of the thoughts that you have, everything that you are, and all of your strength. The the term there in Hebrew is so beautiful because it's used a lot of times um, as an adverb. Adverbs are, I don't know. Uh, There's probably a thing to remember what that is. But it describes how you perform an action, right? That's what an adverb is. And, And many times this term for strength is used to describe when something is done at maximum strength. When something is done at full force, maximum power. Like that is what is being described. This exceeding action, or interest, or, or thought process. It's, he's saying, I, I want you to give the Lord, I want you to commit to him in covenant all of your thoughts, your whole being, and you're going to give him everything you've got. I mean, we see this play out at times in life, maybe even with people. I get to see this right now, and this season played out with my son, Lawrence, right? He's uh, almost three. He'll be three in February, and so he's at this just sweet, sweet age where when I get home from work, uh, I, I know that about half the time, if he's in the area, uh, what's going to happen is he's going to hear that I'm home. My daughter will probably scream something like dad or daddy. Uh, and so that, that notifies him. He's like, okay, he has arrived, right? <laughs> Connection imminent. And so he then, from wherever he is, just starts trucking. And he'll truck. And try to find me, right? He's rounding corners and slipping and kicking off walls until eventually he lines up with me. And what he loves to do is he loves to just straight up sprint directly into my legs. And he's about, you know, yay high. So he just boom, bounces off. Uh, but no, not really. He, he runs up and he just grabs me. And he, and he just gives me a big, a big hug. And he's just yelling my name. And he's so excited that I'm there. And I'll tell you, that is the kind of love, that's the kind of strength 
that God asks of his children. He says, this is what I want from you. Because ultimately it's going to bring him the most glory and ultimately it's going to bring us the most good. He says, I'm a father who loves you, who cares for you. I'm a father who's worth running towards and embracing with all your mind and all your heart and all your strength. He says, that's why I've given you this law. That's why I've given you these commands because I'm your father and I love you. And I care about the direction of your life. And as you move forward and as you try to follow my commands, what's going to, the truth is it's going to demand focus. It's going to demand intentionality. That's what we see right here, hopefully in verse 5. Is that, man, there is, there is a desperate need for us to focus on who God is and what he's done. To really give him our best. Because if we lose focus, what's going to happen is we're going to give our best to other gods. I do this all the time, where essentially I look at my weeks or I look at my days and I've, you know, reached a point in life that many of us are in or fast approaching or have long since surpassed. And it's a season of life where every single week you've just got to choose who you're going to disappoint. It's inevitable. Someone will be disappointed in what you can offer to them any given day because there's just, there's just so much complexity. And so one of the best kind of advice is one of the best kind of plans of action that I received a few years ago is that, hey, you've, just, you've got to start out weeks. You've got to look ahead. You've got to say, who am I going to disappoint? I've got to choose who to disappoint. Sometimes it's going to be people in my work. Sometimes it's going to be people in my family. Sometimes it's going to be my friends. Sometimes it's going to be myself. And I'll tell you, one of the things that I will drift towards in that prioritization system is I will overlook the Lord. I will overlook and, and deprioritize my time with him and disappoint him in, in that sense. Not, not that my favor in his eyes hinges on my obedience and my action, but, but I, I disappoint him in the sense that I, I don't follow after him first and foremost. I'm putting other gods before him. And yes, the Lord calls us to work with excellence in everything that we do. He calls us to be excellent fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters and sons and daughters and co-workers. Yes, God, God has given us these responsibilities because he entrusts them to us and wants us to be faithful with what's in front of us. But he also wants us to remember that he is the Lord, our God, the Lord who is one. That he is worthy of our heart our mind, our strength. And so maybe this break, maybe the next few weeks, we're not just praying for conviction. Maybe we see where we're we're letting the Lord kind of slide down our list of priorities and instead we should be praying for devotion. Praying the Lord to give us the motivation to be, maybe in his word, maybe maybe it's adopting a reading plan. You can find lots of really cool Christmassy Advent reading plans. Uh, maybe it's simply saying, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm going to make sure for my family this, this Christmas season that we're going to actually read through the, the birth of Christ. Maybe we're going to read, a, we'll buy a book or we'll read it just straight out of Scripture. We're, we're going to pay attention to the Christmas story. Or we're going to invite friends to, friends to come to walk through Bethlehem because that's what's going to focus our minds and rem- help us remember ultimately who we're devoted to, who this season is all about. Maybe we're going to decide, maybe over this break, I, I need to practice a spiritual discipline. I'm going to fast 
from worrying about those travel plans for a week. Or I'm going to fast from, you know, being on social media. I'm going to fast from doing this one thing or whatever. Whatever seems to be pulling me away from the Lord, I'm going to practice these disciplines of maybe generosity. And I'm going to be more excited. I'm going to bring my family alongside of me as we get more excited about giving than we are receiving. I don't know what it is for you, but, but it's maybe the Lord is calling you to pray, not simply for conviction, but praying for devotion, praying for the motivation to put him first, to follow and focus in on the God who saves you, who saved you, who loves you, who's calling you to himself. And, and what's beautiful is that as we walk through these steps, as we remember these truths, Moses is going to explain to the people of God, he says, look, What's so beautiful is that as you pray for conviction, as you pray for devotion, this, this alignment, this focus, it's, it's meant for more than just your own personal benefit. In fact, if we ask ourselves, why do we follow? Right? It's, it's to focus our love. But it's, it, when I say us, when I say we, it's not just us here in this room. See, when Moses talks about it in verse uh, 6, uh, he's going to explain this simple truth that our focus in and of itself, will in fact develop more followers. That our following, right, requires, demands our focus. And as we focus, it develops more followers. Verse 6 starts like this. He says, These words that I'm commanding you today must be kept in mind, and you must teach them to your children, and speak of them as you sit in your house, as you walk along the road, as you lie down, and as you get up. In other words, he's saying you should be teaching them, literally in, in the Hebrew, he's saying you should engrave them into your children. You should drill these lessons into their heads, right? Which is really, it's, it's, it's interesting because if we really look back on our lives, if we think, if we really think about it, uh, there are certain lessons, there are certain behaviors that if we're honest, are, they are legitimately drilled into our heads, Why did you do that, right? We're in church right now. We, we know, thank you, Ben. Uh, we know that there are certain cues, there are certain prompts. You walk into that room and you just are like, okay, I'm going into autopilot. You got to drive somewhere and you're like, okay, I just, I know how I'm going to get there. You hear that rat a tat 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 and you just, oh, you just got to get it out. It just happens. Right? We have certain things that are drilled into us. Moses, God through Moses is saying, you've, you've got to take the law, you've got to take these commands and drill it into your children. In other words, take the people over whom you hold the most possible influence and speak it to them. As you sit in your house, as you walk along the road, literally right there in the Hebrews, it's, it's as you're at home and as you're abroad, as you're on the journey. In other words, every single possible place you could be, as you lie down, as you get up, literally in the Hebrew, they would use this all the time, where it's these kind of op- polar opposites, which means everything in between. It's not just literally teaching them as you go to bed, teaching them as you eat breakfast. It's, it's everything in between, from sun up to sundown. It says you should be teaching, engraving this, literally engraving this into your children and these people over whom you hold influence. You should tie these words as a reminder on your forearm. Fasten them as symbols on your forehead. Inscribe them on the door frames of your houses and your gates. He's saying, I want you to, to keep these words close to your heart, to keep this focus in every moment of every day of your life. 
says, and so maybe you're going to need reminders. In fact, the Hebrews, uh, they, they followed this very literally. They created things called the Teflon. And the Teflon were little boxes, little black boxes, where they would put in little scrolls that had the written words of the law, the different passages from the Pentateuch. And they, they put these words in little boxes, and they would. They'd put it on their head. They'd strap it around their arm. They would take uh, these, these truths of the Lord and keep them close at all times because it was a sign of conviction. It was a sign of relationship and covenant relationship with, with God. Now, unfortunately, this eventually evolved into a, a kind of a hypocritical, prideful practice that Jesus himself uh, just shoots down in Matthew 23 when he told the crowds and to his disciples that, hey, the experts in the law and the Pharisees, they sit on Moses' seat. Therefore, pay attention to what they tell you and do it, right? He's saying the law, the words that they're quoting are very important. The commands of God are very valuable, but do not do what they do for they do not practice what they teach. They tie up these heavy loads and they put them on other men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing even to lift a finger to move them. They do all their deeds to be seen by people for they make their phylacteries wide and their tassels long. He's using the Greek term. This is the Greek term uh, for the Hebrew, the exact same Hebrew concept of Teflon, this, this little box. He says they've, they've made these big old boxes strapped to their heads. Why? Because they don't actually care about a relationship with the Lord. They don't care about following the God of the universe. They care about what other people think of them. And so Jesus is calling out that hypocrisy. He's calling out that horrendous practice of not actually even following the words you're saying, of, of creating these heavy loads and then, oh, you take that. You pray those things. You live that way. Me? Uh, I'm not going to worry about it. Jesus says, that's, that's the worst. Don't do that. So instead, Jesus is affirming still, hey, but the commands of the Lord are good, right? So when the law tells us we should inscribe it, we should keep it close, write it on your doorframe. You know, I, I think one of the issues that pops up a lot of times is we question maybe, I mean, where really is my influence? Do I really have the opportunity or the ability to influence other people? Because there's some of us that are sitting in here and we don't have kids. And that's fine. Because you're... 12. Uh, there's others of us who we have children, but they are, they're grown. They're like in their 40s and they don't listen to anybody, right? I don't know. Like I, they, we have different seasons of life represented here. And you know, what's beautiful uh, is that this principle still holds true, that our focus should develop other followers. Because the truth is, is that every single one of us, we all have our own doorways, and maybe it's not to our home that we own with our four children and our white picket fence and our two and a half dogs or whatever the average is, right? That's, that's maybe not our doorway. But man, we, we have our house that, that we rent with roommates um, that we probably shouldn't write on, right? Because we're, rent, we're renting. Uh, but it's a place where we hold significant influence. You see, when, when the Lord told his people uh, that he was sending an angel of death to, to wipe out the firstborn sons of Egypt, when they were held captive, they were slaves in Egypt, God was going to deliver them out. What did he tell them? He told them, why did, why did Brian make this like three months ago? Because he, God told his people, there's going to be a sign that you're going to need to follow. There's going to be an action you need to take to show that you trust in me, that you have a covenant, loving relationship 
relationship with me. And what is that? You're going to paint the frame of your door. You're going to kill a lamb, an unblemished lamb. You're going to take the best, the, the, the first of your fruits, right? You're going to take the best of your best, the, all of your energy, and you're going to put it towards the Lord. You're going to say, I'm going to commit myself and my household to God so that anyone who walks by, when anyone sees that frame, they're like, whoa, what's going on? Well, it's a covenant relationship with the God of the universe. That's what's happening. And so when Jesus is affirming the law, he doesn't tell the people, hey, you need to go and, and repaint stuff. When Moses is writing the law, he doesn't tell them, okay, so go take it in blood paint. No, he says, you just take the law. You don't have to take the symbol. You've got the words of God. And so he says, engrave it on your doorframe. Write it down. Show the world, everyone that you can influence, who it is that you belong to, who it is that you're following. And so for some of us, man, that's a doorway through, maybe it is to our family. Maybe we do need to double down this break and say, you know what? I'm going to actually lead out and I'm going to try to bring my family towards the Lord this Christmas. Not towards those events, not towards those travel things, not towards that last basketball game. I'm going to move my family towards the Lord. Some of us, we're going to say, you know what? That doorway that I'm walking through, I'm, I'm going to be with friends. Over the break, I'm going to go back home and I'm going to see a bunch of weird old high school, high school friends. And man, it's weird, right? But you're going to see them And you have an opportunity to say, this is where I belong. This is the relationship that I have. These are the priorities in my life. Jesus has changed everything about who I am and where I'm headed. Let me tell you about it. Some of us, that that doorway leads into our workplace. Some of us, that doorway leads into maybe maybe our, our school, our classrooms. But we all have areas of our life. We all have opportunities to influence and impact other people's hearts, minds, thoughts, and actions. And that's what we're called to. Not in a way that, that somehow elevates us. Not in a way that, that makes our box big and our tassels long. It, it's in a way that is born out of a true devotion, a true conviction that we need the Lord, a true devotion to, who, to following after his word. And then we pray for, for God's intervention to bring those opportunities to light, to bring up those conversations. Maybe we've gone back home or maybe we've had our kids come back 10 times and there's just, it never feels like the right moment to, to ask him about spiritual things. It never feels like the right moment to press on that issue or ask that question. And maybe it hasn't been. But that should not change our conviction that we should be praying for these people, praying for opportunities that God would open a door. That that family member would ask the question before we even bring it up. That that moment could take place in a way that that brings truth and love just as Jesus modeled for us time and time again, full of grace, full of truth, changes lives. So I don't know where we're at tonight. I don't know exactly where we're all coming from. I don't know exactly where we're all going. But man, I know that if you have trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, that at some point you have acknowledged that the Lord is your God, that the Lord is one worth following. You've acknowledged that, that he is worthy of your heart, of your mind, of your strength. And hopefully you've acknowledged that he's worthy of being spoken about, of rallying people around, to show them the beauty of our gospel, the beauty 
of the God who gave us his law, who's shown us his love, who's calling us to himself. So let's pray for those opportunities right now. God, we are grateful that you have given us, Lord, just a, a beautiful a beautiful picture of, of yourself in the law. That, Lord, that it's, it's not simply a bunch of outdated rules and, and, and commands and prohibitions, but that instead, Lord, there, there is, in fact, life transformation that can take place, love redirection that can follow us being obedient to living the way you've called us to live. to to taking to heart what Jesus summarized as as the greatest commandment. Lord, he he quoted that Shema. He quoted exactly what his whole audience had been saying every morning and every evening of their entire lives. That we should love you with all of our heart, soul, and strength. God, that we should then love the people around us just as we would love ourselves. Lord, let us take that to heart this season over this Christmas break. God, let us finish well in our work or in our studies. God, help us be witnesses to who you are and what you've done. And Lord, let our focus on you be an incredible light in what might be a really dark time for others. God, let our focus develop more followers of you in every place that we hold influence. God, we can't do this without you. So Lord, empower us to to walk well, to follow you. Lord, we pray these things in your will. Amen. Well, hey, uh, just as a reminder, uh, we have our potluck this evening. If you need to run out, grab something before you go, that's totally great. Also, if you don't have time, you just want to go straight there, that's also fine. Uh, There'll be plenty. And so if you head out these doors, you turn right. It's in the room that's literally right on the other side of that wall. Other than that, we love you guys. Um, We will see you next Sunday.